Today's reading is Luke 7, 36 through 50. After the reading, we will pause for a few moments of reflection to allow God's word to take root. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned, turned, turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine with me this morning that I have an old cardboard box up here that I want to show to you. Upon opening it, you see an old sweater, somewhat ratty looking. And I go on to explain to you that it dates to the 1930s. It's similar to one of these. This is a page from a German catalog from 1933. So it's very similar to one of these, but it hasn't been washed since it was last worn. I then tell you that it belonged to my grandfather. He collected World War II memorabilia, and this was part of his collection. The sweater was owned and worn by Adolf Hitler. It was part of his actual wardrobe. And after his death, the for many former Nazis took mementos from Hitler's life. And this particular sweater appeared on the black market and was acquired by my grandfather. The sweater in the box was worn the week before Hitler committed suicide. It hasn't been washed since then, and if you look closely, you can actually see sweat stains on the sweater. So here's my question to you. Would you be interested in trying on the sweater? Now think about it for a second, and hold on to that, because I'm going to come back to it, because it's relevant to the story that we just heard read to us from Luke chapter 7. So I'd like to invite you to look, if you have a text with you, if not, turn 
the Bible that's underneath your seat, the blue one, it's page 864, or open up your uh, Bible app to Luke chapter 7. If you're new to Grace, we're spending, we're devoting 52 weeks this year to what I've described, what I'm describing as a beautiful risk. Uh, what is the beautiful risk? It's to see where love takes you. And this is not a program, this is not a campaign, it is uh, not anything that I'm trying to pressure someone into doing, but this really comes out of my own personal journey, and very specifically out of a, a season of prayer at the end of 2016, in which God seemed to impress upon me two very distinct things. The first was that the only way forward is through self-giving love, and then secondly, the thing that God impressed upon me was to see where love takes you, to see where love takes you. So I'm functioning out of that. I'm coming to you out of that whole desire to, to enter into that beautiful risk myself, to make this part of my own personal life. It's a risk, but it's a beautiful risk. And it involves three key risks that I've described to you before. It involves the risk to let God love me, the risk to love God, and the risk to love my neighbor. And in the month of January, we've been looking at the risk of letting God love us. And because it's so foundational, and I really appreciate a lot of the, the feedback and the emails that I've received about how you've been responding to, to this first risk. Because of its feeling so foundational, I want to stay in it during the month of February. And then in March, what we'll do is we'll look at the risk of loving God and loving our, our neighbor and seeing the interplay between those two risks. So that's the plan to move forward. But my approach today is to go through the story in Luke 7 to make some brief observations and commentary. And then I want to ask, what does this reveal about God's love? And then I want to offer my personal response to the question, how does taking this risk to let God love me in this way affect the way that I relate to others? So I'll make some very personal observations, and perhaps you might find them helpful, okay? So that's the plan to move forward this morning. So now that you have your text open, uh, I want you to look at the text with me in Luke 7 that was recorded, uh, that was read to us earlier. It begins at verse 36. Luke records Jesus being invited to a meal in the home of a man named Simon who is described as a Pharisee in verse 36. If you've read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you know that the Pharisees were Jewish religious leaders who are in continual conflict with Jesus. And you see it repeatedly as you read the Gospels. They're especially outraged by Jesus' association with people that they classify as sinners. Uh, Just turn a couple pages back to chapter 5 and uh, look at verse 29. This is where Jesus goes into a tax collector's home by the name of Levi. And in verse 29, Levi made a great feast in his house, and there were a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So they're, 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 again, they go after Jesus continually in his public ministry for his association with what they describe as tax collectors and sinners. So back to Luke chapter 7. In verse 36, another piece of background, it talks about them reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. Now, again, this is important to to kind of picture what it was like to eat in the first century in the ancient Near East. You didn't sit around tables, or you didn't sit on the couch in front of the TV. 
you reclined. And typically you reclined on your left side because most people were right-handed. So you would lean on your left elbow as you were as you're reclining, you would eat with your right hand, and your feet, everyone's feet would dangle out the back. So they're typically in a U-shaped configuration. It's called a triclinium. And you would sit around these low tables, and your feet would be dangling out the back as you would eat with with your right hand. So here's Jesus doing this, and in verses 37 and 38, the word spreads through the neighborhood that Jesus is nearby. And Luke describes a woman of the city who was a sinner... She crashes a meal, and she engages in an act that goes way beyond what you might expect even a slave to do. Because the slaves of that day were expected to wash the feet of the guests when they came into the house. And yet this woman stands at Jesus' feet. She, she comes up on him. She, she begins to weep, and her tears begin to drip on his feet as, as like water might wash his feet. And she takes her hair, and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And then she leans down and she kisses his exposed feet. And she takes out a flask, an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment and anoints his feet with oil. It's a very intimate, a very, um, a very odd set of actions that begin to take place at this meal. And meanwhile, Jesus' host is watching this and he's making a silent judgment about Jesus. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He's basically saying if this man, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know that she was an unclean sinner and he would not let her defile him by touching him. Therefore, he's not a prophet of God, Simon concludes. He's not a representative from God. So while Simon is silently judging Jesus, Jesus speaks in verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Jesus then goes on to tell a story, a story about someone who lent money to two people. One person owes ten times what the other person owes. The money lender forgives both of them. And the question is, who is probably more thankful? To which Simon then answers, well, I would imagine the person who was forgiven more money. And that's the story that Jesus tells to Simon. And through this story, Jesus subtly reveals that he knows how Simon is interpreting this incident. Thus proving he really is a prophet of God. And Jesus is telling him that his interpretation is wrong. The woman is not what Simon thinks. She's responded to Jesus' offer of forgiveness, which is what he had come telling. It was the message he had brought, the good news of the kingdom, which included forgiveness of sin. And that news had spread around, and that's why she had gathered around that house in hearing that Jesus was there, because she knew that he was the one who was broadcasting this message, and she was now responding to that message. And she responded to Jesus' offer of forgiveness, and she's demonstrated it in her grateful love. So to be sure that Simon connects the dots, Jesus takes a more direct approach in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, notice he turns towards the woman, so he has to turn and look back behind him, and Simon is probably 
sitting next or leaning next to him. And he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, at first glance, in reading this, you might think that this woman has merited forgiveness by the fact that she has loved Jesus that way. But rather, it's just the opposite. She reveals that she has had this encounter with God's love and forgiveness by the way that she loves. Look at verse 47 again. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. Her love is the indication that she has encountered God's love and forgiveness. Her love is a response to that reception of God's forgiveness and God's love. And Jesus is saying to Simon that he doesn't need forgiveness. Simon, you don't think you need forgiveness. His self-righteousness blocks him from receiving the love and the forgiveness that comes from God. And so he turns to the woman in verse 48, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is claiming the authority to forgive sins. Any religious Jew knew that that was something only God had the right to do. So when Jesus is claiming to forgive sin, they know that he is claiming to be God. So that's the story. Now to the question, what does this reveal about God's love? I think it reveals what I'm choosing to call the embrace, the embrace of God's love. Now let me explain it by returning to the Hitler sweater question, okay? Okay. That little incident that I described at the very beginning that perhaps caught your attention and caused you to go, wow, that was an actual experiment that was conducted in the 1990s by social psychologist Paul Rosen, R-O-Z-I-N. You can look it up. And as you might imagine, the respondents refused to try on the sweater. Not even if it had been washed, lent first to Mother Teresa, or taken apart and all the yarn turned back into a new sweater. People said, no way. The sweater's Hitlerness couldn't be removed by detergent or by dry cleaning. Even more interesting that people felt a very high level of discomfort being near or in the same room with the sweater. And what Rosen goes on to say is that studies like this reveal that people tend to think about evil like it's a virus or a disease or something contagious. In other words, evil is something that, it's an object that can seep out of Hitler into a sweater and contaminate anyone who touches it. And therefore, we want to try to avoid it. This is part of what is called the dynamics of disgust psychology. Disgust involves a feeling of revulsion. It's that uh, feeling of 
nausea. It could, it's an internal response, or it can be something that's externalized in our face. You know, you can think of something that, you, oh, that's gross, and the, the type of face that we make when we're revulsed by something. So it's a feeling of revulsion which is often triggered by a judgment about an object's contamination. So disgust monitors boundaries. Who or what you accept or reject or who or what you include or exclude. So in this incident in Luke 7, Jesus is judged using contamination logic. This woman is a sinner. She's touched Jesus. Now he's contaminated. And if he really was a prophet of God he'd know that she is a sinner, thus contaminated, and he would be revulsed, and he would refuse her contact with his body, thus monitoring a boundary. So what worries the Pharisees throughout the Gospels is Jesus' contact with sinners. You see that in Mark as well. We already read it to you in Luke. But underneath all this is the magical thinking that sin is contagious. And they expect Jesus to respond with withdrawal or avoidance or even stronger rejection or expulsion. Yet Jesus refuses to respond this way. Why? Because he does not operate with the assumption that sin is contagious. Jesus reveals God's love as the will to embrace. Taking a line from Miroslav Volf. His love dismantles the boundaries created by the psychology of disgust. God's love dismantles boundaries. Whether it's religious purity boundaries that you see in the scriptures or racial ethnic boundaries that you see with the Jew-Gentile question in Acts and the Pauline letters or any other social boundaries or personal boundaries that we find in our culture today. God's love has the ability to dismantle boundaries. And God's love dismantles boundaries to bring new life and healing and restoration between God and humanity and between fellow humans who are made in God's image. So Jesus reveals the embrace of God's love. Now finally... The personal part. How does taking the risk to let God love me in this way affect the way that I relate to others? Well, if God dismantled the boundaries that, and the barriers that my sin created, or that might pose, the, 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 the barriers that my, my sin might pose to his loving me, and he removed those in order to, to, to love me, then I can take the risk to love others in the same way. Because if sin is not contagious, I don't have to give in to the impulse to create otherness in my response to people, which can lead to withdrawing, avoiding, rejecting, or expelling them. And so what happens is that this frees me to embrace, to extend hospitality, Because if sin is contagious, then extending hospitality, the full, robust, biblical type, becomes impossible. And I'm telling you, this has become revolutionary for shaping the trajectory of my life in recent years. 
The embrace of God's love has shaped for me a posture of hospitality that's a lifestyle, not an occasional one-off with my friends. Now, I realize I face the possible criticism of looking like I'm soft on sin. So I'll go ahead and name that for you. For anybody that's uncomfortable right now with what I've just said. And in fact, it was interesting because I was having a conversation with my, some members of my family this week in which they relayed to me uh, some commentary that came back about me and our church and that we didn't talk about sin enough. We just talked about love. So it was a criticism that I was getting ready to address anyway in the sermon that I was soft on sin. And I think that comes because in our attempt to give weight to the biblical notion of holiness, there's an impulse to try to keep love pure. And yet Jesus' vision of holiness involves embracing tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. Somehow you have to put that in there. Jesus' vision of holiness includes embracing tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. So here's how I've been helped to wrestle with this, uh, this tension. And I close with this. It's a kind of a lengthy quote from Richard Beck titled The Impurity of Love. He writes, There's this impulse in some sectors of Christianity to keep our love pure. We see this impulse at work in the mantra, Hate the sin, but love the sinner. The idea here is that we can, with surgical precision, make a cut between our affections toward human persons and how we feel about their behaviors. But such surgical precision is psychologically untenable, and we know this. It is incredibly hard to not let a person's behaviors affect how we feel about him or her. So when we come to embrace human beings, our strong feelings about their behavior do get marginalized. And to those looking on, that embrace looks like we are getting soft on sin. He says that's true. When you embrace sinners, there's a sense in which you're pushing their sin to the background. That is, when you love sinners, there's a sense where you're looking at the person first. Sin has been removed as the perceptual filter, as the central focal point. And that perceptual shift, moving the human being into the foreground and the sin to the background, has a psychological feel, an emotional tone that could be labeled going soft on sin. Sin has been perceptually decentered so that the human person can stand in front of you and has become less emotionally charged. A perceptual and emotional rearrangement has occurred. My point in all of this is that there's, it's really hard to keep love pure. When you love sinners, and I mean really love them as, a, as in affectionately and not just verbally and theologically, a sort of contamination is involved. Things get a bit blurry and messy in your heart. And that's why we say things like, love has to get dirty. He concludes with this. He says, I was recently reminded of all this reading a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his ethics. The quote's going to come up behind me. 
Just as God's love entered the world, thereby submitting to the misunderstanding and ambiguity that characterize everything worldly, so also Christian love does not exist anywhere but in the worldly, in an infinite variety of concrete worldly action and subject to misunderstanding and condemnation. Every attempt to portray a Christianity of pure love purged of worldly impurities is a false purism and perfectionism that scorns God's becoming human and falls prey to the fate of all ideologies. God was not too pure to enter the world. So I leave you with a question this morning. Will you let God love you with the embrace of his love? Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you so much for incredible love that you have shown to us, that you revealed in Jesus, a love that confounds us at times, that confuses us, that perhaps puts us in tension because we have our own ideas of the way love should work, and yet you, Jesus, are constantly surprising us with the way that you embrace people. I thank you that you have shown this to us, and you've embraced us, and you've loved us, and you've looked beyond our sin to embrace us, to love us, to invite us into your family, to shower your love and forgiveness and grace upon us. Thank you that there is forgiveness of sin, but even more so, thank you that there is the embrace of your love. And I ask that we might be people who experience that in the days to come. In your name, amen.